This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Looking to instantly upgrade your Mother's Day gift from typical to meaningful? Shop Etsy. Get up to 30% off well-crafted and personalized gifts from participating shops until May 12th. This year, embrace your creative side. You know, the side your mom gave you? And shop Etsy for custom jewelry, style pieces, home decor, and extra special items she'll adore. Need something original and affordable for Mother's Day? Etsy has it. Shop until May 12th for up to 30% off gifts for mom. Terms apply. This is the Intelligence Matters Podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell. Sponsored by Raytheon. Genome sequencing is allowing us to unlock the secrets of the genome in ways that would have been absolutely impossible 40 years ago. And then on top of that, there is precision gene editing that allows us first to understand the genome better by knocking out genes in animals like mice and fruit flies to try to figure out what various genes do, uh, but also to begin to actually make edits to pre-implanted embryos, which is what happened in China last year. So the Chinese, where are the Chinese on this? How are they thinking about it? You know, you, you get this image of maybe the Chinese using this to build an army of the future. China is embracing not just genetics and, and biotech, but so many of the technologies of the future with a very coherent national plan to lead the world in these technologies by 2050. There is no doubt that we will be making human genome edits to our pre-implanted embryos going forward, but we have to have an ethical framework, and that's and China is the wild card. Jamie Metzel is a geopolitical expert and a technology futurist. He is a senior fellow at the Atlanta Council. Jamie has served in the National Security Council, State Department, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and the United Nations. Jamie recently published a book, Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering and the Future of Humanity. As a result of his research, Jamie was recently appointed to the World Health Organization's Advisory Committee on Developing Global Standards for the Governance and Oversight of Human Genome Editing. I just had a chance to sit down with Jamie to discuss his book and the fascinating national security implications of genetic engineering. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our exclusive sponsor, Raytheon. I'm Michael Morrell, and this is Intelligence Matters. From training warfighters to modernizing platforms to defeating UAVs with lines of code, Raytheon is working across networks, markets, and continents to protect every side of cyber. Raytheon, making the world a safer place. Jamie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thrilled to be here. You wrote an amazing book that will hit the bookshelves next week. It's titled Hacking Darwin, Genetic Engineering and the Future of Humanity. I will tell our listeners that I received an early copy 
and I literally could not put it down. I read it in an entire sitting on a Saturday from, I don't know, 9 in the morning until 2 or 3 in the afternoon. It's just fabulous. Good. It's music to my ears. That's what every author likes to hear. Excellent. Jamie, you say that most of us think about genetic engineering in terms of healthcare, but you argue in the book that we're setting about to change the way that we make babies, and that is arriving faster than most of us are prepared for or that most of us understand. Can you unpack that a little bit? Sure. So right now, when most people think about the genetics revolution, they think about healthcare because that is how genetics touch us. And so people are very familiar with this idea of the future of precision medicine, that we're going to use genetic information to make sure we get the right right sourcing of drugs. People are starting to hear about things called gene therapies and other ways that uh, genetic science is going to be used to improve our health care. But unlocking the secrets of the genome tells us so much more, not just about our disease states, but about who and what we are. And so while we're going to learn more about genetics through the experience of healthcare, once we understand how our genetics work, there are going to be other applications that are much broader than healthcare. So the first is going to be through direct-to-consumer genetics. Right now, many people send their mouth swab, their cheek swabs in to companies like 23andMe, and you get some interesting information back. About I've done your, that. Yeah, I've you, done that. so you, I'm sure you learned, looking at you, that you're part Neanderthal. <laughs> yes, uh, in the exactly. Best, in the best sense of the, of the term. People learn about some actually very important information about their carrier status, uh, status for what are called Mendelian disorders, where there's a single gene mutation, kind of an on-off switch for some diseases and disorders, and whether you're a carrier for that is actually useful information. But that's kind of about it. Uh, the, the ancestry information is interesting. It's not that relevant to people in terms of you're not going to live your life. I mean, I'm 0.01% Yakut. It's yeah, fun. I have new Yakut brothers and sisters, and, I'm, exactly. and I hope they're listening to this exactly. podcast. I find out that I'm 0.1% or, or 0.01% Ashkenazi Jew. Shalom. Isn't that something? Yeah, it's yes, great. Yes. That's great. So we just got some additional listeners, the Yakuts and yes. the Ashkenazi <laughs> Jews. Um, so that's really interesting. But as we unpack more of what our genome is and the way we're going to get there is because in not too long, maybe a decade from now, we're going to have billions of people who've had their whole genome sequenced. And when we use big data analytics to compare their, this genotypic information, what the genes say, to the phenotypic information, which is how those genes are expressed over the course of people's lives, which will be realized through information in their electronic health and life records. We're going to know more and more, not just about simple genetics, on-off genetics, but complex genetic patterns. And that is going to move us into a world of predictive genomics. So one of the applications will be that from your early childhood, your parents will know about how certain aspects of your life are likely to play out. What are your greater than average disease risks? What are potentials that you may have? And whether it's potential to live a long and healthy life or maybe potential to be really great at abstract math or sprinting or all these kinds of, of things that right now we that see. That have a genetic basis. That too. have a genetic basis. And not all traits are entirely genetic. Some are partly genetic. And we'll never know 100% about that genetic basis. But we'll know a lot, and it will be predictive in many, many ways. But then the next step, as you mentioned, is how is this going to influence the way we make babies and the nature of the babies we make? Right now, there are many people around the world um, who have used IVF 
uh, to have children in vitro fertilization and a newer technology called pre-implantation genetic testing, which is basically embryo screening based on sequencing the pre-implanted embryos. And again, right now we know a little bit. We know about these single gene mutation diseases and disorders and chromosomal abnormalities like uh, Down syndrome. But in the future, in the not distant future, we're going to have all of this predictive information about pre-implanted embryos. And that's going to allow parents, prospective parents, to select among pre-implanted embryos based on optimizing health or optimizing other traits. So I remember 40 years ago, the cover of Time or Newsweek, I forget what it was, had a test tube, right? And it had right. a baby in yeah. it, right? And I just read somewhere that, that the first test tube baby just turned 40 years. So what's, what's different between that yeah. and what you're talking about? Sure. So yes, uh, 40 years, 41 years ago and now, Louise Brown, the world's worst, first test tube baby, was born. As a matter of fact, we had a birthday party for her. She didn't come uh, in my apartment here in New York and we served eggs. 40-plus years ago, it was a really big deal. The Catholic Church condemned it. Many people said this is a slippery slope that will lead us toward these playing God and, and designer babies. IVF is one absolutely essential tool in the application of genetic uh, technologies to baby making because what it allows us to do is take conception outside of the human body. And that allows for a much greater degree of surveillance and ultimately of manipulation. So IVF was one piece of the puzzle. But then other pieces have been added. Uh, Pre-implantation genetic screening, that's another one. Uh, Now, with very low-cost genome sequencing, is allowing us to unlock the secrets of the genome in ways that would have been absolutely impossible 40 years ago. And then on top of that, there is precision gene editing that allows us first to understand the genome better by knocking out genes in animals like mice and fruit flies to try to figure out what various genes do, uh, but also to begin to actually make edits to pre-implanted embryos, which is what happened in China last year. So let's dig into this a little deeper. But before we do that, so you spent a good chunk of your career doing international relations, yes, doing the kind of thing that I did. Yes. So how did you go from that to this? It's a really, a really great uh, question. So more than 20 years ago, I was on the National Security Council and I had the great fortune uh, of working for someone who I love and admire and a friend of mine, I believe a friend of yours, Richard Clark. Yes. And Dick in those days, I mean, this was the second term of the Clinton administration. He was jumping up and down and fighting with people saying, we have to focus on these two issues that nobody is paying any attention to. And they were terrorism and cyber. And as you know, Mike, when 9-11 happened, Dick's present memo was on President Bush's desk and nobody had paid attention to it. And Dick always used to say that if everyone in Washington is focusing on one thing, you can be sure there's something much more important that that is being missed. And so for me, 20 years ago, I thought a lot about that. I thought, what are those issues? And I kept coming back to the genetics and biotechnology revolutions. And this was a long time ago. It wasn't nearly as advanced as, advanced as it is today. So I just started reading everything I could and uh, started just calling people, saying, hey, I know you're a scientist. You've never heard of me. I want to come by. I want to talk to you. I want to pick your brain. When I felt like I was ready, I started writing articles in the kinds of boring policy articles that you and I read. Mm-hmm. 
And I got a call one day from Congressman Brad Sherman, who'd read one of those articles and said, hey, this is really important. Nobody's talking about it. I want to do a hearing based around your article. Will you come and, and be the lead witness? So I did, started doing a lot more. But then I realized nobody's reading, unfortunately. Not enough people are reading these kinds of memos. So then I had the idea to write science fiction novels to tell the story of the genetics revolution, but in a way that could be more absorbable uh, to people. And I did that. But in my book tours for my novels, Genesis Code and Eternal Sonata, when I explained the science to people the way a novelist would explain science, which is often different from the way a scientist would explain science, all of a sudden I saw people's eyes getting wide and they, and they realized, like, well, that's what this is. And we'd, we'd heard the words genetics, DNA, IVF. They'd heard it all, but they didn't really know how the pieces fit together. And that was when I knew I needed to write the story to tell the history and the story and the future of the genetics revolution in the way that everybody could absorb. That's great. So maybe this is a little bit unfair, but as you look out at all of the new technologies, right, from AI to robotics to quantum computing to these revolutions in, right. in, in biotechnologies they're talking about, do you think bio is the most important or is that hard to say because they're all linked together at the end yeah, of the day. So, so what I would say is, first, the essential point is this super convergence of technologies. Like the biotech revolution can't happen without the AI revolution because of the, the ability to analyze the unbelievable complexity of the human genome within this, the complex systems biology of, of humans and the, within the ecosystem the, of the environment around us and then compare that to this very complex information in our electronic health and life records, that's so far beyond what any human or even all human brains together could do. So we are co-evolving with our machines, and you need all of these technologies together. And yet, we can say of these technologies that are entirely interlinked, which are the ones that are going to change our lives the most? And certainly, in my view, the biotech and the AI revolutions are the most significant in that area. So, Jamie, you use a very interesting tool in the book to give people a glimpse of how fast and how significant things are going to change in the world you just talked about. And that tool is the image of a woman, the same woman, right, visiting the same fertility clinic and seeing the same doctor at 10-year intervals, Right. right, and having her doctor at each of those intervals explain her choices, right? Walk us through a couple of those you know, certainly where we are today and yeah. then and then the furthest out sure. that you've yeah. that you've thought about. Yeah, and I did that because I wanted people to realize how imminent this is. I mean, I write science fiction and I realize it's pretty easy to say we're gonna be flying around in Millennium Falcons and there are gonna be Wookiees everywhere. But I really want people to read this book and to say, Hey, wait a second, this is about me. This is about my kids. And because I really think it is. And that's what struck me when I yeah. read it. Yeah. Right. Good. I was thinking about my kids having yeah. children and what choices they're yeah. going to have that that I never even thought of. And right? every one of your listeners, for some of them, their experience of having children will be different. But anybody listening to this, your children's experience of baby making will be different than yours. And so right now, if you go in to a, a fertility clinic in a permissive country, the United States certainly is um, is one. What are the things that you can do? So you can um, go through IVF as a woman. You can have your eggs extracted. You can have your eggs fertilized with the man's 
the man's, either your partner or whoever, a donor's sperm. And then you can grow those early stage embryos for about five days and have cells extracted from each and sequenced. And when that happens, the things that you can select for are single gene mutation diseases and disorders, chromosomal disorders, and then some very simple traits like hair color and eye color. So today you can That's do that. today. Ten years from now, there are going to be way more diseases that you'll be able to screen out, way more disorders that you'll be able to screen out. Some of them will be these relatively simple genetic diseases and disorders, but increasingly there'll be more information about complex diseases and disorders, which are implicated by hundreds or thousands of genes. And you won't have, it's because it's not binary, there won't be a yes, no, a 100% yes. It may be a 50% greater chance of X or a 70% greater chance of Y. And what, what, what would one of these diseases be? Like heart disease, okay. early onset familial Alzheimer's. Uh, lots of these diseases, most diseases are complex diseases. A small number are just these single gene mutation uh, diseases. But on top of that, as I was mentioning before, um, this predictive genomics will tell us about so many other traits. You'll be able to rank uh, your, your pre-implanted embryos on likely tallest to likely shortest, likely having the highest, at least genetic component of IQ to the likely lowest genetic component of IQ, likely more outgoing personality to likely less outgoing personality. Again, these won't be absolute predictions, but there is going to be a lot of information because 10 years from now... So this in 10 years? It's in 10 years because we're going to have billions of people who have been sequenced. That's a lot of, of information. So that's 10 years. 20 years from now, come back. Then what are, what are the things that we may be able to do? So right now, I don't know if we can... if How old your listeners are, but I'm going to go for it. Average woman... Um, undergoing IVF has about 15 eggs extracted. Average male today. today. Average male ejaculation has about a billion sperm cells. So sperm is dime a dozen, but human eggs are actually very precious. And going through the IVF process, the number goes uh, goes down. And so the number of fertilized eggs you have, let's say it starts at 20 or 15. And then when you have the ones that, are, that look good and have all the, the proper attributes, maybe you're down to 10. Now maybe you want to have a boy or a girl, so now you're down to five. And now maybe you want to screen out certain uh, genetic diseases that, are, that you're particularly afraid of. And now you're down to two or three, and so you don't have that great a set of, uh, of options. But what if you could expand the number of eggs? And that's where we're going with a process a uh, technical term is in vitro gametogenesis. But basically what it means is you take a skin graft, although any adult cell will do. You then use a process developed by Shinya Yamanaka, who won the Nobel, 2012 Nobel Prize for this, to induce these adult cells, these skin cells into stem cells, stem cells into egg precursor cells, egg precursor cells into eggs. And because there are millions of cells in a basic, in a small skin graft, Let's just say now you have 10,000 eggs. And this works with animals, hasn't yet been tried on humans. Let's say you have 10,000 eggs. You fertilize all of the eggs. And you have the, the sperm to do the that. Male. You have the sperm to do that. You grow these 10,000 now fertilized eggs for about five days. You use a machine to extract 
a few cells from each one. You sequence them all because the cost of genome sequencing has gone down from about a billion dollars in 2003 to about $800 now uh, to basic negligibility a decade from now. And now you have 10,000 choices. And then the range of what you can pick is much greater. And then 20 years beyond that, then we're going to be able to do more of the kind of gene editing that it actually happened in, in China last year. And I don't think we're going to be doing tens or, or 20s of gene edits, but I do think it will be possible and common to go in and make one, two, three, four, five gene edits to either reduce a risk or provide an enhancement. So how did you come up with these predictions? What level of confidence would you put on them, right? right? Thinking as an analyst now. Yeah, exactly. And at the end of the day, would you be surprised if this ends up being faster than you currently think or slower than you currently think? I have absolute confidence that our species is moving in the direction of conceiving our children in laboratories and not through sex. I certainly believe that the scenarios that I describe are very real scenarios. Whether I'm off by a few years in one direction or another, even a decade, it's important. But the real story is that after 3.8 billion years of evolving by one set of rules, which we call Darwinian evolution, random mutation and natural selection, we are now beginning a future process of evolving by a very different set of rules. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of our discussion with Jamie. Do you hear that? That's the sound of the world changing, of networks connecting, enemies evolving. You can't slow it down. You can't avoid it. You can't stop it. But you can stay a step ahead. Every day, Raytheon engineers are innovating, modernizing, delivering trusted, innovative solutions that protect people, information, and infrastructure. So as our world changes, we can make it a safer place. Okay, Jamie, so now we come to the implications of all of this. Let's start with the positives. Let's start with the upsides. What do you see as those? There are incredibly great upsides. Whenever I speak about this topic, I could speak for an hour and I could spend 58 minutes talking about the upsides and the positives. And then in the last two minutes, I'll say, but there are some potential dangers and here's what they are. And then people will say, we're all going to die. <laughs> and it's, just, it's the way our brains work that when you hear a story like this, our brains just go right to the negative. It's like you, you see a, a We're going to get to them. You see a beautiful <laughs> painting. It's like, hey, there's a fly on that, on that painting. So here's the upsides. We have this terrible suffering in this world, and we attribute it to fate. How many young people are dying from terrible diseases that we can cure, we will be able to cure. And nobody says that eradicating smallpox was some kind of terrible thing because it was against nature. Like, this is great. This is the history of our species, is that we use our technology to help more people live longer, healthier, more robust lives. And these powerful tools will certainly help us do that. And that's really great and, and really exciting. And we should embrace them for that reason. But that doesn't mean we should support a free-for-all. Okay, the downsides. Very real downsides. Uh, one is everything I'm talking about is hubris. I mean, we are humans. We have limited knowledge. 
we have our technology. Our technology is incredible, but we always know less than we think that we know. And it's always in life. I mean, for me, every year I think, like, God, I'm, I'm pretty smart now. And then a year from now, I think, God, I was really dumb a year ago, but now I'm really smart. And the, the cycle, uh, the cycle goes on. So we know so little about how our complex biology works. And with any complex system, when you go in and you start making changes, some good things can happen and I think will happen, but some bad things uh, will happen. And not all of those bad things are expected. And you know that from your time in, in the agency. So that's one. Certainly, if these technologies work as I believe they will, they will potentially confer tremendous benefits on people. And if we aren't mindful about all of the issues of equity and access, we run the very real risk of bifurcating our communities, bifurcating the world into the genetic haves and have-nots. And then the technology doesn't even need to be real for, for this bifurcation, for this division to happen. People in India have maintained their caste system for thousands of years based on no genetic differences uh, uh, whatsoever. And so what I always say about these, uh, this downside is it's really important that we focus on the equity issues. But the way to focus on them is maybe to imagine the problems in the future. But let's say that, that addressing the equity and division, is, if that's what our values are today, let's realize those values in, in the world around us. And then third area uh, is diversity. We all tend to think of diversity as a strategy to make our workplaces more productive, to enhance our education. But diversity is so much more than that. Diversity is our sole survival strategy as a species. If we didn't have diversity, we would still be single-cell organisms, and we probably wouldn't even be that because the single-cell organisms would have died out when the... The basis of evolution. It's the basis. That's when we say random mutation. That is diversity. And if we start making decisions based on what we think is good. And what I mean, what we think is good doesn't mean making super soldiers. I mean, we may think it's good for people to not be carriers of deadly genetic diseases. But we know from simple genetic diseases like sickle cell disease is sometimes they can confer a benefit. So if you have sickle cell disease, you'll die young. If you're a carrier, you have an increased resistance to malaria. And so there's no such thing as absolute evolutionary fitness. And so yeah. by, by, by going down this road, we'll naturally reduce our diversity. There's a danger of that if we aren't mindful. And that's the thing, things that just happened to us. Diversity just happened to us for the last 4 billion years. Now we have these Promethean tools that will increasingly allow us to manage not just our own biology, but all of biology. And if we don't do this by incorporating a set of positive values to guide our actions, these technologies could become very destructive. So the national security implications of Mm. all of this, right? This is Intelligence Matters. This is a national security podcast. And when I heard have and have nots, right, I'm not thinking of have and have nots in a society, although that's critically important. I'm thinking of have and have nots in terms of nation states. So how do you think about the national security implications of this? I think they're huge. And uh, this is a topic that gets so little attention in the national security world. And I think that's wrong. There, there are the obvious ways where this technology is going to, to, to show up. There are many people in intelligence services around the world who are well aware 
how we could have synthetic synthetic pathogens that could wreak havoc. How many millions of people died from smallpox, but not everybody knows that a team of researchers in Canada used synthetic biology to reconstitute a very deadly, deadly strain of horsepox last year, and it cost them $100,000. That same technology to do that is widespread and dispersed, and the costs are going down dramatically. So those are those are the kind of more obvious and traditional national security challenges. But there are also some other ones that, that, that accessing these technologies is very very divisive. And when you look at how animated, people, how passionate some people have become on the issues of genetically modified crops of, of GMOs, and many people have become violent on GMOs, on abortion, imagine how people are going to feel when the issue isn't genetically modified carrots, but genetically modified humans. People. And imagine what happens if some societies decide to entirely opt out. And I think an opt out is a very legitimate position. And other societies decide that they want to go forward. What do you do if you are the society that decides you don't want to genetically engineer your population, maybe for some very good reasons, but some other society is doing it? Do you try to stop them? Do you try to make it illegal for your citizens to procreate with citizens from those other places? When you walk down that path, it gets very, very tricky. And when you think of all the reasons why countries have gone to war even with each with other countries, they've done it over history for a lot less than right, this. Right, right, right. So the Chinese, where are the Chinese on this? How are they thinking about it? You know, you you get this image of maybe the Chinese using this to build an army of the future, right? Mm-hmm. How, how do you think about what the Chinese are doing? Yeah, it's... Asking about the Chinese is absolutely essential because with all of these technologies of the 20th century, when the United States and Europe were the dominant powers, and especially when these big technologies like nuclear power required the state, the issues were bounded by geography. With these issues of biology, you get the will get the Nobel Prize for developing technologies like CRISPR gene editing. But once the formula exists, right now, high school kids are using CRISPR in, in really significant ways. And so China is embracing not just genetics and, and biotech, but so many of the technologies of the future with a very coherent national plan to lead the world in these technologies by 2050. And there is a very aggressive attitude that China needs to make up for lost time. And they're putting a lot of money. They're bringing scientists and others back uh, from other parts uh, of the world. And first, China is not bound by the same, the Chinese researchers are not bound by the same regulatory structures and cultural and ethical uh, constraints um, as often is the case in other parts of of the world, including the United States and Europe. But second, the government is a big push behind taking the lead. And that's why we're seeing all of these things that couldn't happen in the United States. And whether it's the most aggressive research on primates or whether it's the first application of genetic engineering, of gene editing on human embryos, most of that is happening in China and it's no and it's no accident. And you mentioned earlier that yeah. last fall, right, we had the birth in China of the first ever gene edited human. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. So, and I'll, I'll connect it to my book. Um, so in November of last year, my book 
was already in production. And in the book, I talked about the culture in China, how there was a Wild West culture around science and particularly around genomics, how the technologies existed for editing human embryos, and how the first experience of this editing of human embryos was very likely going to be in China. Then in November, it was announced that it had actually happened sooner than most anybody would have predicted. And so I fought my publisher. I love my publisher, Sourcebooks. I fought the book back out of production. I said, look, I predicted this, and now it's happened. I, I have need to write to, about I, it. I need to, but I didn't have to change very much because I had said this is, uh, this is coming. So this Chinese biophysicist, not, not a straight biologist, not a doctor, not a medical doctor, he very secretly had um, edited the embryos. I mean, the parents knew about it, but they were not well-educated and certainly not well-consented, had secretly edited the embryos of three, um, the three pre-implanted embryos, and two of these children were born in October of last year. And this shocked the entire world because the scientists had gotten together before repeatedly and called for a certain set of standards to be applied to human genome editing, and those weren't applied. And that's what really shocked everyone. I'm actually now on a World Health Organization International Advisory Committee on the Future of Human Gene Editing, and that was created in the aftermath of what happened in in China. So we, as I said before, there is no doubt that we will be making human uh, genome edits, germline edits, uh, to our pre-implanted embryos going forward, but we have to have an ethical framework, and, and that's and China is the wild card. And when when you start thinking about it from a nation state perspective, yeah. right, it start starts feeling like eugenics, right? It starts feeling like Nazi Germany. Well, it can, you know. I I'm it's very tricky for me. I mean, my father and grandparents came to this country as refugees after the war. I mean, one side of my family really suffered and and was decimated by the Nazi ideology. And the Nazis themselves would have said that they are descendants of Darwin. I mean, that was where Nazi ideology in many ways came from. And so it's very tricky for me as the child of a, of a refugee uh, to be talking about this future that to many people feels like eugenics. And in some ways it is eugenics because we are going to be selecting our embryos. And we may be selecting them based on things that we value, like we don't want them to die of genetic diseases when they're little kids. And I think everybody would agree that that's a good thing. But where do we draw the line? How do we maintain our humanity? How do we maintain our sense of respect for people who some call disabled? But you can imagine, you know, if there's some UFO and it's making a loud noise, the deaf people have a superpower. And, you know, high-functioning autistic people can recognize patterns way better than the rest of us. And so if we force ourselves into this normative view of what humans should be, that may make us less human rather than more. So, Jamie, because of all these issues we've talked about, a group of high-profile scientists called last month for a moratorium yes. on inheritable human genome editing until there's an international framework in place. What's your view on that? What do you think we need yeah. to do? I absolutely think that we need to have high ethical standards to determine how we use these very powerful technologies. I am against a moratorium. I had an article in the Financial Times on this. And the reason why I'm against a moratorium is because this is an ongoing process. We're always going to need to apply our best values. We are never going to have 
perfect information. And the right way to do this is to have effective regulatory agencies on the national level and hopefully on the international level that are weighing the costs and the benefits of each intervention. And by creating a moratorium now, I think first it delivers the wrong message. And then it creates a whole set of stakeholders in a moratorium. And it 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 changes the balance of proof. And so I think the balance of proof is for a particular intervention, will it help more than it's going to hurt? And having a moratorium that doesn't allow us in a few years even to make gene edits, for example, that could eliminate deadly genetic diseases that would otherwise kill a future child, I don't think that's worth it. Yeah. So given all the implications of this, this is an issue that needs to be attended to by the government, right? They need to be paying attention to this. I'm thinking about it in a national security sense that if you're in an intelligence agency, this is something that you have to pay attention to, right? If you're in the National Security Council, this is something you have to pay attention to. If you're the president, this is something you have to pay attention to. Are we paying enough attention? Absolutely not. You know, when you open up the newspaper, at least in this country, what do you see? You see... Trump and the Mueller report. Now, I'm not saying that's unimportant, but the story of our generation is not Trump. It's that this was the time when we took control of or increasingly took control of all of biology, including our our own biology. Our government is woefully unprepared. But rather than recognizing that these are really important issues and rather than having the president of the United States set the agenda, say these are really tough issues, we're going to have to figure them out. These aren't partisan issues, but we're going to have to really educate the public because this has to be a top-down and and bottom-up process. We have to to struggle with some really tough issues where there are costs and and benefits, and we have to be thinking about the future, and we're just doing a terrible job. And these are the critical moments because there will come a time in the future, as with every issue, when people retreat behind their barricades, and then they stop listening to one another. And right now, people don't know where their barricades are. We can have an inclusive, meaningful, thoughtful conversation. conversation. The reason why I've I've written the book is I want anybody, whatever your background, whether you're an adult, a child, left, right, whatever, to have one book that you can read and say, all right, now I get it. At the end of the book, I say, here are nine essential questions that you should ask with your church group, with your book club. And there are no absolute answers to this but if we all aren't part of the process, part of the conversation, then we're really in trouble. Jamie, extraordinarily interesting and important stuff. The book is Hacking Darwin, and the author is Jamie Metzel. Jamie, thank you for being with us. Really my pleasure, Mike. That was Jamie Metzel. I'm Michael Morell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters. This has been the Intelligence Matters podcast with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morell, sponsored by Raytheon. The podcast is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, and Claire Himes. If you haven't already, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you download podcasts. You can follow the show on Twitter at Intel Matters Pod and follow Michael at Michael J. Morell. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS News Radio.
I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.